Welcome to Stories of Emotional Granularity, a podcast about emotion. My name is Jonathan Cook. I am an independent researcher who studies emotion. After three decades of asking people about how they feel, I'm still hearing new things. Last week's episode explored the emotion known as Freiluftsliv, the pleasure people feel when they spend time in nature. The word Freiluftsliv is foreign to everyone who is not Norwegian, but the concept is familiar to most people. This week, the opposite dynamic comes into play as we consider an emotion that was first described and defined by speakers of English in the United States, yet remains unknown to most Americans and is completely conceptually foreign even to many who do know the word. This week, we're talking about compersion. Compersion is a pleasant feeling that a person can experience when their lover takes another lover. Sometimes, compersion is defined more expansively than that, as a feeling of pleasure that arises from the pleasure of another person. In practice, however, the word compersion was coined in the context of a polyamorous community and is used almost exclusively by people who are in a polyamorous relationship or uh, to describe such relationships. Another term for the broader experience of pleasure in another person's pleasure is mudita. The concept of mudita comes from Buddhist philosophy. And there will be another episode of this podcast that will be devoted to the emotion of mudita. This episode will focus more specifically on the experience of compersion as an emotion that is felt within a polyamorous context. I know that some people who practice polyamory will disagree with my narrow usage of the word compersion, but that's what it's like to work with emotions. Different people have different definitions of emotions, and the boundaries between emotions are often difficult to pin down. So, I'm going to repeat the definition of compersion that I am using for the purpose of this podcast episode. Compersion is a pleasant feeling that a person can experience when their lover takes another lover. Now, take notice of the fact that I said that compersion is something that a person can feel. Not everybody does feel compersion. Many people, in fact, will insist that compersion is not a genuine emotion at all. A few months ago, for example, somebody wrote on a Reddit discussion board that, quote, compersion is not an innate human feeling. It is a fear response, a defense mechanism akin to Stockholm syndrome or battered woman syndrome, where you feel trapped and helpless. So rather than resist the hurt, pain, and trauma, you go along with it. 
compersion makes as much sense as to find joy and pleasure in seeing a burglar gaining wealth after he just robbed you at gunpoint. Unquote. Now, for the purpose of this podcast, I am not trying to take sides in any conflicts about how to define any emotion. I do think, however, that the controversy around the emotion of compersion has something important to teach us about concepts of emotion in general. Although some people have claimed that emotions are biologically determined and universal among all human beings. When you get out and talk with a variety of people about their emotions, it quickly becomes evident that people actually have different experiences. Some emotions, like Freiluftsliv, are felt by most people, whether they have a word for the feeling or not. Compersion is not like that. That doesn't mean that it's not real. It also doesn't mean that everybody feels compersion, but some people just don't have the guts to admit it. Human consciousness is full of subjectivity, and if we respect the reality of that, we can't go around telling people that their emotions are objectively false. To begin to understand what compersion feels like for those people who do experience it, Let's hear from Marie Tuin, a researcher who completed a dissertation on the emotion. Her interest in compersion arose from her own experiences. So my name is Marie Tuin. Um, I am a relationship and dating coach. I also am a researcher. I've uh, completed my PhD in the East-West Psychology Department at the California Institute of Integral Studies back in 2021, where my PhD dissertation was on the topic of compersion. So that really got me started on that inquiry. Really, um, the origin story of that research um, was from my own interest in intentional relationships and going outside the normative paradigm of, of romantic relationships. Because as I was growing up, you know, as I was going through high school and college and starting to experience, you know, my own sexuality, my own relationships, I always felt really uncomfortable with what I will call mononormativity. And that is a big word that means the assumption that monogamy is the only valid and the only healthy and morally superior way of conducting and creating romantic relationships. Um, and the fact that monogamy was always the default. And anything outside of that was considered perverse, immoral, problematic. That just didn't match what I was feeling, which, you know, was a very fluid way of approaching relationships, you know, that could include monogamy or that could include non-monogamy. And that really wanted to create relationships from a place of freedom and collaboration and consent rather than from a place of a default model. So I set out to research people who went outside of those bounds, outside of mononormativity, outside of those default models of relationships, 
And I realized that there were communities that were, you know, polyamorous or consensually non-monogamous, to use a, an umbrella term. As is the case with most people, Marie was not taught about compersion as a child. However, when she encountered the term, it seemed to fit with the way that she already perceived the potential space for romantic relationships. Compersion was a word I encountered at a conference in 2014. Uh, it was the conference about the future of monogamy and non-monogamy hosted at UC Berkeley in California. And there was a workshop on compersion. And I remember hearing that word and feeling that this was in a way a foundational block of my definition of love or my, you know, like the paradigm of love that I wanted to live in, which meant that I would want the best for the people I love, not in a sense of like, I determine what's the best for you, but you determine what's the best for you, what makes you happy. And I will do my darn's best to support that, even if it is not to my own personal benefit. Before long, Marie chose compersion as the topic of her dissertation research. So I did qualitative research um, with about, well, at the time, 17 interviewees who I selected on the basis of having been in consensually non-monogamous relationships and having experienced compersion. I sat down with them for 60 to 90 minutes each and asked them about their experiences of compersion. How do they experience compersion? What does that feel like to them? When do they experience it? When do they, when do they experience jealousy instead or in addition to compersion? And what are the factors that promote compersion? And what are the factors that hinder compersion for them? Marie didn't just work to define compersion. She also sought to identify different aspects of the feeling. There were two research questions. One was, what is compersion? What mm. is the experience of compersion? And that question yielded three themes. The first one was that a component of compersion is empathic joy. And it's really about kind of merging into someone's experience, like feeling what they feel or imagining what they feel. So there's kind of two kinds of empathy. I hope that's okay. I'm going granular with you because your project is about emotional granularity. Cognitive empathy is when you imagine what someone feels. And then embodied empathy is when you actually resonate with your body and you feel what they feel. So there was that distinction, you know, that I came up with between attitudinal and embodied compersion along those lines of embodied and attitudinal empathy. Another component was gratitude. And gratitude showed up for people in relation to their romantic partners, other relationships, bringing them benefits. So there is, I would say, a, um, a very practical component to compersion, where when you feel that you benefit from someone else's relationship, you're naturally going to want to support it more. That's, that's the more uh, functional aspect. And mm -hmm. people named a lot of different benefits, for example, um, relief from the pressure of having to satisfy all of your partner's needs. 
let's say someone really wanted to go dancing and their partner really wanted to go camping and they're and they found a partner outside of their primary relationship who wants to go dancing while your partner finds another partner who wants to go camping and all of a sudden you don't feel at odds about not meeting each other's every need and preference another mm -hmm. form of gratitude could be my partner is growing in ways that are so beautiful like they're becoming more sexually attuned they're becoming more emotionally attuned they they are developing better communication skills because they are engaging with someone else. And then they're bringing back those benefits to me and to our relationship as well. Another one could just be like, oh my gosh, my partner is dating someone else that I really like and I'm making friends with them. And I would not have met this person otherwise. My social life is expanded. So there were a lot of different contributors to that gratitude factor. Compersion is fluid, dynamic, and on a spectrum. And I'm bringing that up because that's where, you know, we look at the fact that no one really forces compersion to happen. Compersion emerges in different contexts that promote compersion, and it doesn't necessarily emerge all the time, and it doesn't emerge in the same way. Let's step aside from Marie's research for just a bit to hear a more personal perspective from a person who works to educate others about compersion, but is also willing to talk about her own experience of this emotion in the context of her polyamorous relationships. Meet the author and educator, Rebecca Rose Fassi. Because I associate compersion primarily with polyamory and non-monogamy, I don't think it's impossible to have in a, a monogamous context, but uh, it's a word that definitely came out of polyamory culture. I've been actively polyamorous pretty much my entire adult life. In fact, I've only had one monogamous relationship, which I had when I was 18 years old. <laughs> and from then on, it was like, nope, this is who I am. So it's been the story of my entire adult life. I am also a sex and relationship educator and coach at the Pinka Center for Inclusive Treatment and Education. A big part, and my specialty there really is working with people who are either actively polyamorous or who are trying to figure out how to get started. The Pinkus Center is DC, Maryland, Virginia based. Um, it was started by Tamara Pincus, who is a sex therapist. And it kind of went from being her individual practice uh, and then expanded to being a larger practice that is largely sex therapy based, is very uh, queer and trans inclusive, very kink aware, very polyamory friendly. So, you know, we, we like to joke like we're we're the home for all the misfit toys. Um, so if you ever felt like you didn't belong, you probably belong with us. About a year and a half ago, she decided to expand further into doing education, offering workshops and things like that, and uh, also to start including coaching. And I was brought on to do a lot of content writing and also to structure the education program and do, do a lot of the workshops myself. So I do like all of the programming and uh, a lot of the, the actual facilitation. So it's a pretty great place. Like we're, we're definitely not your typical, you know, therapy practice. <laughs> um, Everybody is, you know, tattooed and has wild colored hair and, you know, has radical justice views and all kinds of things like that. So it's a very, it is a fun place to be in addition to 
doing some really important work, I think. Like I came to all of this from a very circuitous background. I started it out as a, a theater actress right out of high school and moved away from theater after a while for a number of reasons, uh, left New York and came down to the DC area. I started in the burlesque scene. I still do theater from time to time and it's still a great love of mine, but I'm a burlesque producer and performer. I also produce a storytelling show called Smut Slam DC, which is uh, an open mic sex storytelling show. So it's audience members coming up and talking about their sex lives on stage. And it's a lot of fun. It was created by a former sex worker and uh, artist named Cameron Moore, who created this thing that's now an international, we have branches all over the world. So I have three books out. There's one that uh, just came out in December, The Best Women's Erotica of the Year, Volume 8, which is edited by Rachel Kramer Bussell. The very first book I ever put out was one of my pandemic projects. Because we have this international smut slam juggernaut going on, um, one of the things that's also an aspect of the show is people contributing anonymous confessions that get read from the stage. So sexy confessions about their lives. So we had long wanted to do a book. So I edited and learned how to publish. <laughs> like, so it was my like, let's just dive in and figure out how to lay out and publish a book. We created a book called Anonymous Sex. And it's a selection of the, the confessions that we've gotten over the past seven years that Smut Slam has been running. We commissioned five artists from around the world to do original erotic art for it. I've published an urban fantasy novel, again, self-published. And so like doing the anonymous sex book was also partly my practice for figuring out how to publish this book that I wrote. This particular one was kind of, it's called Metamorphosis and it's U.S. instead of O.U.S., as you can hear, Rebecca is quite busy in her work with the Pincus Center, but compersion is personal for her as well. You know, the funny part is I I have my mom to thank slash blame for it, and she'd probably be real horrified to hear me say that because she was she's a very like conservative Catholic, like, you know, monogamous straight lace, you know, like all of those kind of things. But when I was growing up, she would like she looked at you know how people were my age were dating and she was like why is everyone so serious about dating one person you know so quickly like in you know back in my day like it took time before you went steady with somebody and you just dated a whole lot of people and like and then it took a while and like and she just kept harping on like why don't people just go on a lot of dates with a lot of different people and apparently I really internalized that because I did that all through high school. I just dated a lot of different people and I didn't know that there was a word for it or there was a thing. It was just kind of what I did. And then I had my one monogamous relationship and I was like, well, you know, I don't ever want to do that again. By the time I got together with my most longstanding partner when I was, uh, I met him when I was 19 and we were together by the time I was 21. And it took us about two weeks into our dating relationship before we were like, this monogamy thing's kind of nonsense. Like we were dating other people when we were just friends with benefits and like, that was fine. Do we need to stop? And we're like, no, let's just keep doing it. And so it was probably a couple of years beyond that. It was a couple of years beyond that, in fact, that I learned that there was such a word as polyamory and that there was a community and there were groups we could go to and like publications and books and like and of course like this was 
still in the early stages. Uh, this was, you know, like the early 90s. So we're still kind of in the early years of the modern polyamory movement. So everyone's kind of figuring everything out. And like, you kind of had to like really know where to look to find your resources and to find your people and all that kind of thing. And, but it was so exciting to be like, oh my God, this is a thing. We didn't just make it up. We're not just freewheeling bohemians, you know? And, and so like finding that was like, oh, okay. Like there are other people that we don't have to explain this to, and we can just, you know, go on dates and have fun. And it's like, we were kids in candy in a candy shop and it was pretty great. So it's kind of just always been there and it just took a little bit of time to figure out, you know, that there was actually a framework for it. Of course, it's one thing to learn about polyamory in the abstract and something else to put it into practice. Rebecca explains how that happened for her. I think one one of the things that was key is that my partner who I've been with for all of these years now, he and I were best friends. Um, we decided to be roommates because we both we were both going to the same acting school in New York and we both wanted to live in New York and we moved in together. He developed feelings for me, which I didn't return initially. And he was very understanding about that, actually. And that really made the difference that he was like, OK, like, I respect that you want to be friends, even though like I have these feelings. And then we reached a point where we were still effectively just friends, but we were also sleeping together. Because we didn't have, you know, like a, a love relationship at that point, you know, we were like, well, we're still free to see other people. Like, this is just a fun thing that we do, you know, like, like roommates too. Sure, that's normal. You know, we, we both did like see some other people, have some other, you know, partners, whatever. No, neither of us was doing anything very seriously. And then when we did get together, it, like I said, it was like literally like a week later. What ended up happening is that uh, the girlfriend of a friend of ours, spent we were all at a weekend event together and she spent the entire weekend hitting on him very blatantly we talked about it you know because at first he's like oh no no she's just being friendly i'm like no 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 like she's really into you and then he came into our hotel room and he was like yeah she uh she just tried to french kiss me in the elevator so i guess you were right and so we talked about it afterwards and i was like look i wasn't bothered at all by her hitting on you it just bothered me that she was like kind of giving me the cold shoulder and being really rude to me in the process. Like, you know, back off, <laughs> like at least like say hi to me, you know? So we, you know, in the course of talking about it, I was like, well, this, you know, we agreed this woman is toxic and we're not dealing with that. But I was like, I was the one who said we had things going with other people while we were like, quote unquote, just friends and that was relaxed and we felt good about it. Like we enjoyed this feeling of like, ooh, we're bohemian free spirits, you know? And I was like, why does that have to stop? And he was like, I, I'm don't. i kind of okay with keeping that going. And I was like, well, then let's just do that. Like, let's make our own way. And it still took us probably a good, I would say two to three years after that before we actually put that into action because we were still like in this very like, oh, you know, new relationship energy of we're together and we're so in love and like, you know, and so we were very focused on each other because it was so like new and exciting. And then once we got to the point of like, okay, like we're actually exploring stuff with other people, I will say there was a lot of 
we had a lot of fun. We had a lot of good experiences. Um, we dated the same person a few times, which is unusual to, you know, be able to start out doing that successfully. We were not trying to like date the same person, but it kind of worked out that way. So there was a lot of good stuff that happened, but also like those first, I would say like five to seven years that we did it were incredibly difficult too. And there were points at which we almost broke up. There were points at which, you know, we weren't sure if we were going to be able to survive it. And so there, there was a lot to overcome. And then we kind of reached a point where I guess we just sort of, a lot of the drama settled down. We kind of had worked through a lot of stuff and, and it was like, we sort of, without realizing it turned a corner and was like, oh, okay. Like, you know, all of us, like not just the two of us, but like our, you know, other partners and larger, you know, polycule and community, whatever, like we've kind of been through a lot. Like we're tired. Like we just, we just want to hang out and enjoy each other, (laughs) you know, and, and we all kind of got better at managing stuff and understanding where people were coming from and realizing that the other people that we were interacting with, like other partners or, you know, partners of partners, whatever, like they're not the enemy. Like we're all in this together. We're all presumably care about each other's happiness and want the best for each other. And, you know, so why are we, what are we struggling about? Rebecca isn't painting a perfect picture of her polyamory. She is acknowledging the challenges that come with negotiating a romantic relationship that is open to the possibility of other partners getting involved. However, Rebecca also began to feel some emotional benefits to having a partner who was romantically active with other people. You know, I can't point to it exactly, but it was sometime in that like late 80s, early 90s period where a lot of like stuff was being written and created about polyamory to like try and understand the stuff that we were doing. So it's probably somewhere in there that I first heard the term. So it's a little bit different from like feeling joy on their behalf because they got a promotion at work or, you know, like they, uh, you know, had had some other accomplishment. So it is a little bit unique to non-monogamy in that you know, monogamous people are not in a situation where they have to like see their partner with, you know, in love with, or, you know, being sexual with, or flirting with, you know, somebody else. We were both interested in a woman that we were friends with. And I was like, you know, I'm pretty sure she's flirting with both of us. And so we're like, well, let's, you know, kind of see if we can like explore down that road. And it turned out, you know, I was right. She was interested in both of us. And we ended up having a triad for a while. And I can definitely remember like just feeling this like, you know, elation of like, there's a, there's a little bit of like, I guess, pride in, in sort of being like, oh, look at us. We're doing polyamory for real. Like, this is so great. But I also like watching the two of them hang out and, you know, be affectionate with each other and joke together and banter and like whatever. You know, and even like because the three of us would sleep together and sometimes I would like occasionally sit back and just watch them, you know, enjoying each other physically. And it was like, man, like, it's great. And like, I knew he was excited and happy and like she was 
loving every minute of it. And, and like, those were like, oh, wow. Like I love both of these people and I love that they love each other and, you know, and that they're having a good time together. And I love watching that dynamic. And it is like, you know, so finding out the word compersion was like, oh yeah, like, okay. Like I totally get that. My longstanding partner has another partner who, um, he's been with for, I don't know, probably 17 or more years at this point. And initially the three of us were a triad as well. And that all fell apart and it was very messy. Several years later, the two of them got back together. She and I at that point really became very close friends. And to this day, she's she's still one of my best friends. So, but I was not part of that. You know, it was not a, a sexual or romantic dynamic between me or her. Getting to the point of seeing them together, seeing how much she you know, cares about him, seeing her take care of him, seeing him, you know, be protective of her and like, you know, the, the ways they were silly together and, you know, just being able to, it's almost sort of like having a, having a seat on stage. Like I'm not part of the show, but like I'm closer than just being in the audience. And it's just a wonderful feeling of like, yeah, there's, there's somebody else in the world who like gets this person on the same level that I do and is so invested in his happiness and, you know, wants to make his life better. And like, why wouldn't I want that for him? You know, Rebecca has felt the pleasure of compersion and teaches others about how compersion can be a part of a polyamorous experience. However, she also believes that compersion can't be taken for granted. It's not something that people in polyamorous relationships experience all the time. I touched on this very briefly before, but I do want to emphasize that the experience of compersion doesn't depend on the relationship that you have with your partner's partner. Um, it is possible that you never meet that person. Some people are very compartmentalized that way but you can still feel the feeling because you're experiencing your partner side of it. The other thing that I really want to emphasize is that it's not a downfall if you don't feel it. Um, it is completely normal, natural, common to not particularly feel like you might be okay with everything, but not feel especially joyful about it. You might be struggling with it. I really want to emphasize that nobody can demand compersion from their partner. It's going to happen or it's not, but it's not fair to place that expectation or to accuse your partner of like not being polyamorous enough because they're not feeling compersion. Like a lot of things can get in the way of that. And it, it's great when it happens, but it is by no means a requirement for um, a successful relationship. Marie Tuin also encountered this idea in her research. Sometimes people in polyamorous relationships accuse their partners of not being poly enough. Other times, people make that kind of accusation against themselves. One of the myths about compersion, especially within polyamorous communities, is that if you don't feel compersion, you're not poly enough. There is that pressure of feeling compersion that I think is very destructive because one, you know, we're all wired differently and people have their different emotional maps and to pressure someone into feeling something that they're not feeling is never a good way to go about it. It never works. And two, sometimes people don't feel compersion because there is actually something 
not that great happening in their relationships. You know, like maybe their partner is holding back or maybe there is insecurity within the relationship. There are people who come to me and they're seemingly in kind of toxic situations with their partners. And they ask me like, oh gosh, I'm really jealous because my partner is, you know, with this other person, but then they don't want to talk to me about it or they don't, they're not really open about it. And I feel all of this kind of red flags or or, or things that would lead me to think like there's actually something not healthy going on relationally. And they're asking me for help to feel compersion. And my response to that is like, I don't think compersion is the answer here. Both Marie and Rebecca reject the idea that compersion can be taken for granted in a polyamorous relationship. Even when people agree in principle to a romantic relationship with space for other romantic relationships, putting the principle into practice is not always easy. Social arrangements may involve agreements about mutually acceptable behavior, but emotional interactions are not so simple. What we want and what we want to want do not always match. The emotion of compersion is personal. It's not just a matter of abstract ideology. It's like friendship in that Someone can believe in the value of friendship in general and yet not want to be friends with everybody. The fact that someone in a polyamorous relationship is willing to feel compersion doesn't mean that they will feel it in every circumstance, any more than a person looking for love is looking to fall in love with just anyone that they happen to meet. Marie's dissertation research wasn't just about people's definitions of compersion. Her study also explored perceptions of the factors that foster compersion and the barriers that interfere with the feeling. What are the factors and the contexts that promote and or hinder compersion? So what factors impact compersion? And so I had it divided in the you know, factors that positively impact compersion and the factors that negatively impact compersion. That yielded six different themes. And these six themes were grouped into three categories. Um, I'll start with the categories. So the first one was individual factors. The second one was relational factors. And the third one was social factors. Some people, you know, are very on board. They know that this is who they are. This is what they want to do. This is who they're meant to be. And then there's people who might have been dragged into non-monogamy by their partner and they're not really on board. Maybe they kind of see how this could work and they don't want to lose their relationship. They're like, okay, let me give this a try. But really, I would much prefer monogamy. It is striking to me the way that Marie's research describes the impact of factors beyond the individual on the feeling of compersion. People's romantic partners have an impact on the emotion, of course, but so do the partners of those partners. And the influence of one's immediate community and one's position in society as a whole play a role as well. I don't think that this dynamic is something that is unique to compersion. We like to think of our emotions as something that we feel alone. And ultimately, the feeling of the emotion belongs to us. 
However, our cultural identities and social connections strongly influence the tone that these emotions take on and what we decide to do as a result of them. I've met a lot of situations where, for example, like one woman would have two boyfriends or two husbands. And both of these guys in that situation were very introverted. They didn't necessarily want, you know, like a full-time partner and they like to have maybe like a relationship on one day and then another day to be alone. And then for the woman, she was more of an extrovert and she liked the diversity of having two partners. I had one research participant, uh, a woman who was dating a man who was part of a marriage with another woman. And she was telling me she had a lot of compersion for their marriage because it was allowing her to have this really amazing relationship with her boyfriend without having to be part of a marriage, without having the pressure of being a wife and being a mother. And, you know, she didn't want any of that. She was really happy with having a more laid back relationship. So she was happy that he was getting that need of being in the family unit. We don't have time to go through all of the findings of Marie's research, but luckily we don't have to. Her dissertation is available online in its full original format and in a shorter version for those who are looking for the high points. For people who don't want to read all 600 pages of my dissertation, which is free and downloadable online, by the way, um, I have created a small ebook which really distills a lot of what I've talked about today, but um, really the, the most practical gems of my research about what are the factors that promote and hinder compersion. So people can find both of those things, you know, my full dissertation or the small ebook, as well as a lot of other resources and blogs on whatiscompersion.com. One of the things that I'm trying to do with this podcast is to represent an emotion from different perspectives. So I want to round up this episode by sharing my own perspective on compersion. When I first started interviewing people about compersion, I didn't think that I had ever felt this emotion. As I was listening to Marie talk about how compersion is experienced on a spectrum, however, I thought back to my own past romantic relationships. I thought back to the 1990s when, for a very brief time, I married an anarchist. Okay, so you're probably not surprised to hear that that didn't last very long because, well, she didn't really believe in the institution of marriage except as a way to share health insurance coverage and Shortly after we got married, during her lunch break at work, I quit the job that was giving me health insurance coverage anyway, so no, it didn't last for very long. We never even moved in together. The thing is that I was aware from almost the very start of that relationship, our romantic involvement, that she was already in another romantic relationship with another person. He lived in another city, but she would see him from time to time. Now, I didn't gain any pleasure from her relationship with him. 
the fact that she was involved with him did not enhance the relationship that I had with her in any way. Not for me, anyway. But at the time, I wanted to be with her. So I decided that accepting that her relationship to me was not monogamous was worth it. I also didn't wish her any unhappiness in this other relationship. I guess I was kind of glad that she was happy in her own way. Was that compersion? I suppose it depends on how you define compersion. Marie Tuen thought that maybe my experience might be on the compersion spectrum. I certainly never would define it in that way, though, and I have never particularly wanted to feel compersion. Before I began work on stories of emotional granularity, I didn't even know that compersion was a word. So, you know, I reacted to the blow-up of that brief marriage to the anarchist by getting married to a more conventional woman. That marriage lasted for 20 years, and it was monogamous for the entire time. And I am proud of that monogamy because it was an expression of my commitment and a way for me to feel true, authentic to my feelings of attachment. I don't think I ever want to be in a polyamorous relationship. I don't feel emotionally impoverished for not being in the kind of relationship that Rebecca and Marie have described. I just don't think compersion is for me. That doesn't mean that compersion doesn't exist. The boundaries of my own emotions don't define the boundaries of other people's emotions. There are plenty of things in life that other people feel passionately about, to which I am indifferent. What's more, some people have emotions that make me feel uncomfortable or even angry. That doesn't make those emotions unreal. There are many people who are zealously attached to the idea that monogamy is the only real and proper way to experience love. They want everybody to live in a way that makes them feel comfortable, conforming to an emotional path that suits them. Underlying that attitude is the belief that everybody is emotionally the same, that all people have the same fundamental psychological needs, and that those needs can be met in the same ways. That belief doesn't match the reality of what you'll find if you talk with people, listen to them, and try to understand where they're coming from. Now, I have an identical twin. Genetically, we are identical. However, we are not emotionally identical. There are things that he feels that I do not, things that he enjoys that I do not enjoy. I don't know why we have become different in those ways. Maybe it has to do with different experiences that we've had. Maybe it's about decisions that we made or just the influence of Random chance. A human life is too complex to pick apart and definitively understand. 
as if it was a piece of machinery. So I can't explain it, but I can observe that although we have many similarities, we are not the same. It might be easier to live in a world where everybody had the same kinds of feelings. It would also be rather dull. Regardless of what we would like, diversity exists. Emotional diversity is as real as cultural diversity. What makes one person feel secure can make another person feel downright miserable. Now, I'm producing this podcast because I believe that we are more likely to have a society that works for everyone if we enhance our ability to recognize the nuances of our emotional differences. Over the last few years, it's become really popular to worry about social divisions and to pine for a time when everyone could come together in perfect harmony. What no one can agree upon, however, is exactly when everyone lived in harmony. There might have been times when the expression of diversity has been suppressed, but diversity has always existed. Whenever people gather to sing together in perfect harmony, you can be sure that there are people who are straining their voices in order to sing the part that has been assigned to them. This is just the second episode of the podcast, Stories of Emotional Granularity, and already we have encountered contentious territory. That's just how it's going to be sometimes. We don't all want the same thing. Emotion divides us as much as it unites us. Emotion can be negative as well as positive. Working with emotion is not all puppies and kittens. Besides, the truth is that puppies and kittens can be, well, a load of trouble sometimes. Maybe you're feeling comfortable with the concept of compersion. Maybe it bothers you. Both are authentic reactions. Encountering other people's emotions often feels disturbing because emotions focus us on the things that really matter, the things that we feel are worth worrying about. With emotion, there's always something at stake, something to lose, as well as something to gain. So, let's be brave and push forward, because there, there's a lot of emotional territory left to explore. Next week, this podcast, Stories of Emotional Granularity, we'll be back with a different sort of feeling. And I'm not going to tell you what emotion will be the subject of next week's episode. You're going to have to wait and see what it is. Come back here a week from now if you're curious. Until then, thank you for listening in.